Welcome to Rising Tide, a podcast for career-driven women to find inspiration, find courage, and find their voice. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Margaret Winnegar, and this month is the three-year anniversary of the Rising Tide podcast. In the three years, I have been honored to interview nearly a hundred amazing women with a rich set of backgrounds and experiences and gotten the privilege to hear the stories behind their careers. Through that experience, this has turned into a body of research in which distinct patterns started to emerge and how these women were making meaningful choices and changes in their careers. I'm excited to share that I am in the process of putting all of those insights and learnings into what will be a book that will be called Unstuck Yourself, The Process to Making Meaningful Career Changes. If you want to keep updated on when the book will be coming out and what it will include, you can go to the website, margaretwinnegar.com and subscribe to get updates. Now, let's get to today's guest. I was always curious what it would be like, like, you know, I always wondered, can you build something that people care so much that you can build a successful business around it? But it wasn't something that I just want to do a startup and so I will find an idea. It was if I ended up having something that really drove me to work Mm -hmm. on it, you know, and it looked viable to go ahead and at least find out, then I would do it. Meet Vishaka Gupta co-founder and CEO of Aperture Data. With a genuine curiosity to understand things, a knack for developing strong relationships with mentors, and a growth mindset, Vishaka has done something most founders never will. On today's episode, we will discuss core principles and strengths that have fueled her career and how she approaches the concept of balance as the CEO of a scaling startup and mother of two. Vishaka holds a master's in computer science from Carnegie Mellon and a PhD in computer science from Georgia Tech. Enjoy. Welcome to Rising Tide, Vishaka. Thank you, Margaret. Nice to be here. I'm so excited to have you on. And I get a little extra excited when I get to have a guest on that. I feel like we play in similar places, but our strengths and our areas of interest are very different. So I'm so excited (laughs) for this conversation because I always find people who are in fields that are so different than what I understand or have done. I find it so fascinating to have these conversations. I get that too. I had a roommate once she's in graphics design and she didn't understand anything I said. And I never understood what she was making (laughs) until she was done with the finished product. I mean, she's amazing. (laughs) It was just like, I got nothing while she was doing this. You're right. There's something so fun about that type of dynamic where there is mutual ground and a, a wonderful relationship, but respecting that they are really good at what they do and it's okay to not fully understand all the details. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, I just had to wait until the finished product because then I'm like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And before that, I had no clue what you were doing with all these things. (laughs) Right, right. I've kind of said that we come from very different backgrounds, but some overlap. You know, I think one of the things that really stands out to me that is incredible is that you studied computer science and pursued advanced degrees in computer science up to PhD. And this is still, from what I could find in my research, this is still a field and a major that about or less than 20% of women pick as a major. I'm so intrigued. How did you land on computer science? Growing up, 
you know, the good thing was, I mean, I grew up in India. The good thing was no one ever told me math or science was hard or I shouldn't do it or anything. I've heard stories here, but for me, it was like, I liked learning and they just were like other subjects. And in fact, what I have realized very strongly now that logical things with proofs and all those things always made more sense to me. What I sucked at was art. I couldn't finish a single stitching or knitting project that I so we used to have those classes in school growing up. I just could never finish it. And that was the one homework I would get my parents help. <laughs> and I'm really glad that home science wasn't the only option available because, oh my God, I would have failed miserably at it. <laughs> and coming to computer science, it kind of became more like a process of elimination than mm-hmm. knowing from before. Because mm-hmm. my only exposure in school was learning a bit of logo and basic programming. It was fun to play Pac-Man, but that's it. And I actually, back in, if you ask me, like in eighth grade or ninth grade, I wanted to go into either Navy or Air Force because, you know, I had I'd done the, all these camps and gone to the, you know, a national camp or a national cadet corps. And based on all that experience, I was like, okay, I just had to be in one of the, you know, military fields. I just, but what, then- What I, was I, it that caught your point, eye? I actually participated. So there used to be this All India National Cadet Corps camps. And leading up to that, there was a lot of preparation. And I got to compete in like the overall best NCC cadet in India to represent my state and in the junior category. Like I won that category at the national level. But at some Mm -hmm. point, I felt sick during that time. And then I started getting into like, you know, preparing for my exams and so got into a lot of like engineering physics and math and all these things. So what happened was, you know, I had no aptitude for biology. Mm. So in the sciences, what I realized, I just like, my dad is a doctor and I still understood like nothing. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, it's so bad that when I was pregnant, my husband understood the doctor better than I did, even if they were talking about the changes, you know, in hormones in my system. (laughs) I didn't quite follow And so in any case, so 11th, 12th, what we could do was we could choose to keep doing biology so that we had the option of becoming a doctor. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, at the time, becoming a doctor was like the more popular profession choice. I always heard like women went and became doctors there. But engineering was like, you know, the other choice was electronics. So you could Mm -hmm. draw biology completely and uh, choose electronics. They didn't have computer science when I went into 11th grade. So it was either electronics or So I chose electronics because I knew I didn't want biology, but I loved it. It was just amazing. And then Mm. while I was preparing for like undergrad exam, my father learned somewhere that computer science is going to be the future. He comes and tells me, hey, you know, if you're going to go into engineering, I've been uh, talking to people and I learned that computer science is like the next big thing. And this was like between 98 and 2000. And in India, it was like, you know, I think picking up and you could just hear all these jobs like about the growing areas, right? And so I'm like, okay, well, it sounds like fun. And I went for it. (laughs) I always like, you know, when we started, so I went to this college in India, which is in the middle of a desert in Bitspilani. When we started the classes, you know, the first year, it was all like all the things I prepared for the different exams. It was good. And then we started getting into the computer science related classes in the second year. Mm. I always did well with low level programming, operating system. But I kind of struggled with my first programming class. It was mm. a C programming. And somehow there was this concept of pointers and memory management that didn't really make a lot of sense to me at the time. So I struggled with that. 
but I hated the idea of making a B. That was like, you know, I hadn't until that point in time. So it was like, okay, so I worked really hard for that class. I solved so many C problems and I narrowly escaped making a B that year. But in general, like I think later on in the third year, I think the data structures and algorithms class, I still struggle. But it was only during master's. I took a class at some point on implementing operating system kernel. So I always really liked the low-level stuff. So that part, I always was fine. So when I took that operating systems class, that I really learned how this concept of pointers that I used to struggle with work, I just needed exposure to the architecture. I needed to know what was happening mm-hmm. underneath to understand that. And after that, it has never been complicated. I'm getting a sense for you already. And I love this very kind of almost like quiet confidence around like what you can do. I'm so intrigued by that second year when you got into the programming and it was a little bit higher level than what you, you know, really were good at and were enjoying. You gritted it out. You found a way to pull off the B. Did you ever question if computer science was still the path you should be going down? Or was it always just like, okay, I made it through that and, and on to the next? Yeah, that one was just one hurdle. And like, uh, I was like, if I can make an A in this class, I can figure this out. <laughs> and the thing was, that was just like, it was one aspect, right? Computer science has a lot of different subjects. And I really yeah. love, like, you know, the architecture classes. I really like, you know, we did this digital signals processing. Like we had to design a whole microcontroller and write assembly. Like I, I remember doing some assembly programming and I really liked doing all that stuff. It was just this one concept and I wasn't going to yeah. let that kind of discourage me on not doing yeah. And at some point it was just a matter of like, I sometimes joke around how I have these tube light moments. Like in India, you have those tube light. We used to have those tube lights that would flicker a little bit until they actually came on and it was bright light. And I feel like there's a tube light in my head on certain concepts. For a long time, it's just like fuzzy, fuzzy until I can imagine it. And I think that's what changed. Like when I came to CMU and did those classes, we went down deep into the architecture. We had to implement everything. So I understood how that concept was implemented. And that's when it kind of made, started making sense. And then it was like, okay, well, you know, I, in fact, I liked all those classes so much. I didn't take up the job offer I had at the time. I went to study more and specialize. That's why I went for a PhD because there was just so much to learn. How fascinating and how amazing that you really, like at your time at Carnegie Mellon, when you're pursuing your master's, like that was really your opportunity to understand how your mind works in a certain way and how you understand information and what you need to be able to see to understand a situation, a process, you know, a methodology, whatever it is. That's really incredible. And then changed everything. It it did. In fact, back in CMU, I was particularly fond of embedded systems. So like, you know, we did uh, classes on how they test airplanes and how do you make sure that like all the signals go in the right times. And we had to design like an elevator software or something. Except when I uh, chose my advisor, it completely shifted on like the high performance systems. He used to work on embedded systems and I looked at his previous research and then, but he had like changed his focus to high performance systems. And what I actually ended up working on was virtualization and servers there, but there was still an architectural component to my entire thesis. So there was always like a processor and a kernel component, like an operating system kernel component. And I think it just tied back down to the fact that I just loved understanding and visualizing the signals and commands and how everything was happening from the time we send some command to the, like goes to the operating system and then it gets into the architecture. And based on the previous electronic study, how like some of the transistors might be lighting up, it was just like, and that's why in some ways today, 
like I haven't gone deep into neural networks and understanding how people program the or train the models, but just thinking about how it might be happening, it's kind of like that's the fascinating part. Right. Except nowadays, I only get to talk sales and marketing. Yeah. So, <laughs> now you're in my arena. <laughs> I, 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 nowadays, it's, and, and see, now that's the part where I have trouble understanding because there it's like what's happening in people's minds, why they reply, why they don't reply. That's the part I find hard to understand because it's not as easy as debugging like code. <laughs> no, people are complex and they are unpredictable. <laughs> Okay, so you mentioned that after completing your master's, there was kind of this fork where you had a job, but you made a choice to go and pursue your PhD at Georgia Tech. What was the the reason for choosing to continue your education versus taking a job? You know, coming from India, I thought this is me going back to my master's time thinking, okay? I just always thought if you took up a job in between, which is, you know, everyone said that you should not keep postponing doing a job because that's the real world. You're just like choosing studies, which is not the real world. I really enjoyed my time. And I can say that, yeah, I was, it, it was not the real world thing, right? But it was, it, that didn't mean I wasn't learning a lot and doing a lot of things. But I just had this notion that a job in between would mean I'll get married, have mm-hmm. kids, and then never study again there was this one professor and I, I, I asked her about this and she's like, look, you will choose to do PhD if you want to do, so nothing's going to stop you from that. But if you really think that taking a gap is going to mean you are not going to get to do it and if that's going to be something you regret later, then mm-hmm. all I would say is you shouldn't do things that you know you'll regret. Mm-hmm. And that stayed with me. You know, It was like, okay, what's going to happen? I'll go there. I don't like it. I can always fall back on the job offer. Or I'll really like it and, you know, I will learn what I want to learn and uh, that'll be great. So it was only during the PhD time that I came across two women who did their PhDs mm-hmm. while they were married, they had, they had kids. And I'm like, wow, I respect them a lot, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> I like just, you know, um, at that time, like not worrying about anything else and just enjoying that journey. So that's kind of how, like, I, I, that's why I didn't want to take a break. I don't know how it would have gone, but right. I'm happy I didn't. So right. and now I always keep that in mind. Like, even when it came time to switch to the startup, and we'll talk about that later, maybe I was like, okay, if I've thought about it and I really think I should go for it, then let's not have regrets. So that part mm-hmm. has always stayed with me. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about it for a minute. We don't have to stay super linear here. And since you opened the door, you know, that's really interesting because you have founded your own company and you have been very successful in achieving and securing funding for it. So what was the thought process? Because you had a, from all looks on the outside, right? A very successful career at Intel that was growing. So tell me about that time. Because it sounds like some of that, that like, if you know you'll regret it, then you shouldn't do it. So how did that influence the decision to start your company? I was always curious what it would be like. Like, you know, I always wondered, can you build something that people care so much that you can build a successful business around it? But it wasn't something that I just want to do a startup. And so I will find an idea. It was if I ended up having something that really drove me to work Mm -hmm. on it, you know, and it looked viable to go ahead and at least find out then I would do it. So that was that was always my attitude towards it. And honestly, sometimes ignorance is bliss. I really didn't know how many challenges were going to come and come my way. It was like, all right, fine, we'll figure this 
out as we go and i'm still curious and still figuring it out it's it's almost like you learn one thing and then you figure out there are like five other things that you don't know and then it's like okay but you know that's in some ways as much as i can complain about all the things but i think that's also the exciting thing like okay there is all like it was again like i can imagine some new different parts of the brain firing up in learning mm-hmm. a lot of the you know what you need to know for the startup it's just very very like you just cannot get that sort of exposure working in a big company yeah when when you're responsible for everything right there are a lot of things i can talk about the startup in the sense like you know all the team or meeting the people or talking the, with with different customers and just there is just so much to be gained and learned for me like I was working, you know, back at Intel, I was working on a project that, you know, I've been working for quite some time. We had a team, in fact, you know, one of my teammates at the time is now my co-founder, but there was a lot of potential, you know, and in fact, even within Intel, we had this plan and path forward for years to come on the project because technically yeah. it was, it had so many exciting components to build. But there was like a trigger that happened around, I think, 2018 is when mm. we were going to relocate. And it would have meant commuting between mm. Seattle and Portland. And I did that for some time because, you know, remote work wasn't that much of a popular thing. And I really liked being, you know, with the team. We just got so much more stuff done. And I liked, you know, meeting people in my team because you just pick up not just the work you're doing but there are so many different things and even now like you know we even though we all work remote we always make it a point to meet in person in fact that's going to happen next week and it's always exciting like when yeah. we meet each other and talk and like hang out but yeah so there was a trigger and I started thinking well if I'm going to change my job I don't want to let go of this project like we were building this data management system at the time for complex unstructured data we were focusing on images and videos and machine learning was like growing and it's still growing as you can see there's so much happening in the landscape and I was like there's so much to be done I don't want to let go of it but I can't keep commuting and then what are my options and I could either switch to one of the other Seattle area companies or then I started thinking well you know we are building a research prototype because I mean I you know I was in Intel Labs Delivering a product isn't really the mandate. You build reference software that other companies can look at. But reference software doesn't always get deployed. You know, when companies need to deploy something, it needs to meet certain standards. Like now I know very well, like in terms of what all you need to package it and the front ends and like everything that goes along together with actually building the product, right? If we wanted to provide this infrastructure layer that could really speed up some of the deployments around complex data, we have to make it product quality. And so I started thinking, well, you know, I've always wondered if there was something driving me enough, would I go ahead and do a separate thing? And, you know, we discussed, well, the the biggest thing is you have to discuss and be okay in the family. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and do it because a big leap, you know, you're kind of cutting down the income in half, right? mm-hmm. Especially, at least in our case, that was the case. And I was pregnant with the second kid at the time, but I had a logical explanation to what the, why that timing was actually a good time. I'll tell you that in a minute. <laughs> and so when, you know, we discussed, we figured out, okay, this is how much runway I could go without getting paid or without kind of worrying about money. So yeah, we timed it that way. And I just, you know, took a leap. And thankfully, my management at Intel was supportive. They just made me realize they're like, you know, you come to us with all these new ideas and convince us and like, you know, if, if it makes sense, we approve it. You are going to have to bring money by yourself for all this stuff. You can't go to anyone that you just happen to have a cool idea that you want to execute. So just keep that in mind. Like, you know, make sure you're okay 
with the complete change that's going to happen if you go to a startup, as long as you're fully aware of it and you're willing to take on the challenge, well, you know, good luck. And uh, yeah, so uh, they were quite supportive of that, which is something I appreciated a lot. And I appreciated that insight too, because sometimes you just don't realize what it's like. It was still, I didn't actually quite fully realize until we got, like, you know, until getting into it, but it was at least good to know. And my logic around why the timing was fine. So I was pregnant with the second one. And, you know, kids usually forget what happens until they are two. Mm. And the older one already knew that I loved her. So even if I was traveling or missing a few few times, she would not, like, question that part. Mm. So I'm like, okay, I have these two years to go (laughs) <laughs> while the little one is going to be growing up. So I don't know if that logic makes sense. I think it just was to make me feel better about it. But, you know, we kind of made it, like we had this balance. We figured out how we're going to take care of things. I always had this thing like, okay, the evenings and weekends would still be with the kids, even if I had to work hard. And I asked another very senior manager. She used to run like a really big organization. And she's like, hey, look, you can go do something challenging as long as, in your mind, you have very clear priority list. If you never want to miss, or like if you always want to be there on weekends, then sure, even if your job has a lot of travels, you will make sure you fly back in on Friday or you'll go with your family somewhere. Like if that's a priority for you to spend that time with the kid, you'll make it work and you'll still get your job done. Right. And I kind of just kept that in mind. It's like, okay, this is going to be a high priority. And you know, even now in our team, a lot of the people have, kids and families and, and we never expect that it's going to be 80 hour weeks that you don't see the family well I would not survive that it's not a long strategy and yeah of course there are times when I, I, I wish I would sleep a little more but that's fine right school gave, gave that training very well right <laughs> well and I think that's such a great call out too of like there's kind of balance but looking at it over a longer continuum of time as opposed to the immediate where there are times that will call for more intense work but only if it kind of balances back out and and gets back to more sustainable levels. Okay, I have so many things I want to follow up with you on because I heard so many amazing pieces of that journey and the thought process. The first thing was, you've mentioned a couple of times now, you've kind of reached out to either advisors or there's, there's been specifically women in your life that have offered you really impactful guidance or advice. I'm super curious how you have built this kind of support network around yourself? Has it been intentional? How have you gone about identifying these people who have played very important roles in big decisions that you've made for your life and your career? I think at some point it was a subconscious thing. I just, you know, liked talking to people, learning from them. You're always like, if you have the attitude in terms of, oh, hey, look, that person's doing something that's really cool. How are they managing it? And you go find out. You're always learning, right? In fact, Mm. I've realized you find like even your teammates are great mentors because they might shine at something that you didn't even think was a challenge until you get there. And at that time, you're just observing and then you learn and like, oh, wow, that was nicely done. Let me see if I can do it that way, right? But one of the things is during my very first internship, when I started PhD, the guy who was my mentor at the time, you know, so I was learning this completely new system. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't even know that new, uh, like it was a power PC architecture. I didn't know it very well at all at the time. I'd only looked at Intel. He told me, explore the code for 40 minutes to solve whatever you're looking for. But after 40 minutes, stop wasting time and come and ask me. Because I could probably mm. tell you that in five minutes and explain it much better. 
And I realized, I'm like, well, so because sometimes you feel like, okay, no, I should keep digging deeper and find things on my own. Or I kind of followed his advice. I would dig deeper. I didn't want to always, like, I wouldn't, I didn't want to be like always standing at his door and asking him questions because I needed to learn too. But I think his, his rule around 40 minutes, he, he said 40, I would try like an hour just to go digging around. It was like, okay, at least you explored and you knew how to explore. But then you also had to make forward progress. So you just couldn't keep digging and digging and digging. And so I would go and ask him. And every time my questions would get more sophisticated because then I learned the previous thing and then I would go and ask for a new thing. And then I realized when he gave me the answer, I learned about a lot of the surrounding things too, right? I learned the context, I learned the history, I learned what was going to come in. He just gave me a better picture. That kind of became my habit over time. Like, okay, you go find out, you try to do what's you know, right, but then there are people that you have who you know are experts in certain spaces because you've met them at some point casually talked and you learn and then you go ask because then not only do you understand like what you're looking for you also get a context around it and that is very very helpful and then of course if someone asked me I did the same thing so it's like it's you kind of you're kind of paying it forward in some ways or helping other people so over time I've just been like really happy to get very good mentors and managers and I keep them posted and the thing I like to do I, I to always do and not forget is if someone made an introduction, if someone helped me in some ways, just go back and tell them how it went and, you know, keep them posted. And if they ever need something, or if I notice that they might have posted on LinkedIn for something, I, I, I will go and ask them, hey, uh, you know, I forwarded this job thing that you posted to somebody else. Because everybody needs help on something at some point. Some may ask, some may not. But if you can, like I try to. And I've also been lucky to have good managers. I've learned a lot from my managers, my second line managers. There are a lot of lessons I've picked up over time. There was another thing in terms of like, you don't declare yourself a lead. You start behaving like one and like, you know, you take ownership, you set example by doing things. That's so great. You know, I'll come back to something. So there's on this podcast, there's this one word that I usually push back on, which is lucky. And I do think there is an element of luck of getting to work for people who support you. And I also would wager that there were things that you were doing that allowed the managers to pour into you the way that they did. So if I pushed you a little bit and I said, if we, if we look at the definition of luck as opportunity meeting preparation, were there things that you, that you intentionally did, you shared a little bit of like letting them know how, like something that they helped you with, how it turned out, but were there other things you did when you were almost managing up that invited them to pour into you or to, to kind of help open up doors for you? I think just talking to people and not just staying in the, like, I never just stayed like in my cubicle all the time. You know, I would be learning a lot of things around, even back at Intel learning a lot of things, asking a lot of questions and showing a willing, willingness to take on more. I think one of the feedbacks even during internships I used to get was you showed great initiative. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know why that was a big deal because like, you know, I, I, I always thought that what you would be rating me on is how well I implemented something. But mm-hmm. people always put that as a note saying, it was great to see you take initiative because I would go and I would ask like, oh, hey, you know, this sounds interesting. Maybe I can help you with this. Anytime I heard that or like in team meetings, if someone presented something and it sounded interesting, I would go to their cube and ask them, hey, can you tell me more? And can I help you with this? So I just took initiative on that aspect. 
And I think that made people see that I took things seriously and I worked on it and I was willing to work with other people. And I always communicated. Like I always kept them posted. Like whoever I spoke with, whatever I learned, I communicated both ways, right? It was not just to my manager or to their manager because we could do second level meetings, but also to my teammates. Like, you know, hey, I went and learned this. And I don't know if it's useful information. It's just I have. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes you connect the dots. From there. So I think part of it was, I mean, I think the luck is that you do get a chance to be surrounded by good people. And then it comes to you on how you take advantage of it. Like mm-hmm. from the very beginning, you know, we went to good schools and my mom always taught me like, no, you talk nicely. You don't like you never respond rudely to anyone, mm-hmm. no matter where they are from or what they do. And so that always helped because you were always like open minded. You were always learning about people. I guess I, I should also point out someone told me once when I was an intern, one of the mentors, they're like, you should go to that networking event. And I'm like, I don't know what to do there. Plus, they <laughs> always have, you know, back then I was a vegetarian. They didn't have vegetarian food. I'm like, I can't even go for the food, you know. There was one I can't eat right. it. And, he, and he's like, and he's like, you have to go network. But I'm like, but I just need to work with you. It's like, you do not understand. Network is really important. I'm like, but I'm not going to go ask for them for a job in the first meeting. He's like, that's not what you do. You just get to know the people. You expand mm-hmm. what you know. I really, it took me some time to understand the value, especially now as the, like once I left to do the startup and I'm like wondering, I don't know anything about this. Who do I ask? Because mm-hmm. all my contacts are academics, you know, like I, I was chairing conference committees and not going to startup weeks or anything. That was the other thing, like the value of network. You just know people and you know whom to ask and you just feel okay asking and then offering your help too. I think yeah. it's a combination. You're right. Not just yeah. luck. You also have to make something of it, but you also have to have the opportunity of coming across people like good people. Most people are good people, but. Yeah. Oh, I, I appreciate you elaborating on that. And I, it makes a lot of sense. And I've, I've heard this <laughs> you before of it's amazing, specifically in the vein of, of networking, like how much we can build up in our minds, what somebody will say, or, you know, like they'll be annoyed with us for, for, you know, reaching out and reality, like when you make the ask, at least in my experience and and many conversations I've had, it's like, it's amazing how many people are like, sure. Yeah. Like I'll talk to you or yeah, I'd be happy to help you. It's, it's just amazing when you're willing to make the ask, how many people are receptive to that. And then I love how you take it a step further of then kind of sharing back with them and letting them know the impact of that help. Cause that feels so good. And then, you know, I think that whole concept of reciprocity of like, sometimes you're asking things of people and then you're giving it other places, but there's this balance of kind of give and get. And anyways, I, I really appreciate you explaining that. And it makes so much sense. It, and like, just in our limited interactions, like you, there is, there's a warmth of how you communicate and how you show up and, <laughs> and there's an ease to connecting with you. And I would imagine that I'm, I'm not unique in experiencing that from you. So, okay. I have to come back to something else that I, I don't always get to, to talk about on the podcast, but because it played such a big role in this decision to start your company, I would love if we just took a moment to talk about, to go back to the logic that you use. I think both from the conversations with your husband about what it would take in order for you to start your own company. And you mentioned like the importance of that partnership and alignment there. And then also doing it with two very little littles. And if anyone has kids that age, like that is, I call it the vortex. (laughs) 
it's just <laughs> chaos when there's, when you go from one to two and they're like under the ages of three. So maybe coming back to you're at Intel and it sounds like you moved from Portland to Seattle. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So what drove the move in the first place to make you now commuting for work as opposed to being local? Yeah, that time it was, yeah, my husband changed jobs and the area of computer science that we are both in, Portland at the time, like Intel was the big option and the others were either in Bay Area or Seattle. And now we are in Bay Area, uh, but, (laughs) you know, we were really attached to the Pacific Northwest. Like, you know, we've gotten used to Portland. We really liked it there. Seattle was kind of similar, just at a bigger scale. So it it felt like less of a drastic move. Okay. So, yeah. So that was a big, big transition. Figured out a way to make work work. And then that kind of coinciding with having these ideas. When you were thinking about, you mentioned talking about like that idea of, you know, you have like these boundaries around work and that like weekends and night times are for your family. I would love, especially being in the startup world where there's, there's always something to be done, right? It really requires incredible discipline to, you know, hold the boundary. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to practice it. Are there things that you are doing that help you ensure that majority of the time, right? Obviously there's times where you may need to, to compromise it for a brief moment. But majority of the time, you're able to kind of hold the boundary for yourself. So you, you, you have time for your family and life outside of the startup. I mean, like, you know, so one of the things that we had to do was get very organized. So like, mm. you know, we have very well divided things like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I prepare lunch. Yeah. Tuesday, Thursday, my husband prepares lunch for the kids. I always keep, you know, ready to eat food in for my own lunches and like, you know, this time we like, you know, you, you get help where you can't manage. We have very clear, like, okay, this is how we're going to do. We plan the whole week beforehand so that there is not surprises before you're not spending a lot of time on logistics. And I really care about, you know, the kids at least getting to eat the food I make. So I really care about like, you know, my mom's food, <laughs> like food is really like a big deal for me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> In yes. fact, when I travel, I remember places by the food I like there. So that's how it works. <laughs> And so like, you know, so that's why, like, I'll spend my Sundays preparing and, you know, both of us do the preparation. And in some ways, you know, when you make your family a part of it, even the kids help. So mm-hmm. for example, I, now that travel has opened again, I do travel. Like we try to go uh, meet our customers. We'll do like a team meeting and the kids like, yes, they're, they're sad when I go, but then they, you know, they are like, oh, we have to make sure that everything is fine. We have to help Papa. And they're like, okay, Mama, where, which number of customers are you at? And like, you know, they just fully understand. It's like, oh, you managed to hire this person? And like, who is this person? Like, they've met my team. And like, my older daughter draws the company logo and she'll write my email to go to an event so I can like keep like if people want to contact me. And I, you know, the best part was at some point when she was in like first grade, or one of the first grade or second grade presentations that she did, like they, they do like, they have students present on topics. So she went and presented that she wanted to be a CEO someday. Mm. And to me, that's just really, really rewarding. But she at the time combined the two things. She's like, I want to be the CEO of Google or whatever, because she had heard us talk about Google. And then she's like, no, mama, like Google, I kind of got bored. I started my own company and it's called this. And this is the product. And you know what? I hired five people in a day today. She talks to me like this, you know, and now they are like, both of them are enterprising enough to figure, uh, we need to 
put some money in our piggy bank and so let's sell all our dolls and do a garage sale and i'm like you guys are so entrepreneurial from the beginning i wasn't even thinking all these things right back way <laughs> and i think it's really exciting like and you know my husband will also come and ask me all these things so they are part of it so even when i have to go for certain like networking events or i need to go you know do some like i try to not have meetings during the time in the evening or or weekends except like extreme fundraising times you can't really like you just have to do that so that i'm not on the phone i'll work at night the one thing i haven't managed to balance really well is sleeping and fitting mm. in enough exercise but then you know when i go pick them up i'll bike i try to fit it in just you know as much as i can but like you know just having them be part of it makes it easier and they know what's happening you know they know how things are going and like they'll ask me and sometimes it's almost like they're more of a checks and balances i mean they like Mama, why is it taking you so long to get this other customer you were talking about? I'm like, holy shit, you know, a lot of pressure. I didn't bother that I'm putting as much pressure as my children are. She's like, oh, Mama, look, there's that office building, you know, it's still empty. Like, we need to, come on, get going. <laughs> I love the idea of inviting them to be part of it being part of the process and whether that's, you know, doing things, you know, to help around the house or that's sharing with them what you're working on. And yes, I think there's just how beautiful too, that you are role modeling for them that like their first thought is like, I can run a company. Like, why not? You know, I, I do yeah. think that there's something so beautiful and powerful in that being, you know, when you can see it, you, you believe you can be it. And so thank you for sharing that. I think that's really powerful. And I love that idea because I do, I think it's so fun. We kind of underestimate how, how interesting they will find it, you know, and that how much they want to have a role in what you're doing because they love you and they care. And, you know, in, in some ways they also see the value of like all of us helping to get things done in the house because then they see the point like, Oh, Hey, we finish all these uh, chores together. Then we have time to play whatever, some board game or, or read books together or, my mother-in-law and my mom they always remind me it's the quality mm-hmm. of the time with them not the quantity because occasionally I do go into I'm not here or like I'm not spending the afternoons with them that occasionally comes and my sure. husband also has to remind me it's like when I'm with them it's like keep the phones aside you know be there kind of like and I always ask what's happening in their day I always like to know who they spoke with and we have these routines that we do like every Friday go get hot chocolate and and like I try very hard never to miss it and so there are just certain things that like I'm hoping that's what they'll remember and not that you know sometimes I was half sleepy in the evening or I do think there's something to be said for that the the quality not the quantity and and kind of giving yourself grace you know that there are just some times that are more challenging than others to be to be present perhaps as much as you want but when you're there you show up and and make it count I wanted to come back to something and you made me think of it as you were talking about your, you know, like with your daughters and how like that they're already kind of thinking with very entrepreneurial spirits. You mentioned when you were talking about your time at Intel that unless you saw a problem that really was interesting to solve for, like it wasn't really of interest to like start a company and then figure it out. At what point did this idea of, if I see a problem that's really compelling, I'll start my own company. When did that thought process occur? When did you start thinking with that mindset of kind of looking potentially for a business idea? Honestly, I did not go looking for business idea at any point in time. The the reason I had that in mind was, you know, when we were graduating, we have a very close friend who started a company straight out of grad school. 
And looking at how he converted his research into a business that's still, you know, growing, that's what I had in mind in terms of like, oh, it would be, you know, it could be a great opportunity mm-hmm. or like it would be something that would be really cool, really fascinating to build. And it was always like, can, but, but there had to be something that worthwhile, like not just that it was challenging for me to keep wanting to solve, but mm-hmm. also for me to make it really easy to convince other people. That this is a cool problem to solve because you know you need you need a great team, and also for it to do something worthwhile for people. Like I've always been on the backend infrastructure side, so I'm not like I'm not someone who's going to make some service that makes someone's day-to-day life a lot better. For me, it's like okay, if uh, we can do something for like a, a developer or a data scientist, but it's they are benefiting from it. You know, so if we give them a very good data tool to Mm. handle like complicated data, like images or videos, then they can do so much more, like they can deliver so much for their business. So in that sense, it's really worthwhile for that group of people and we can help them solve problems. You know, in this sense, I like to think that all the things that people are trying to do with AI and machine learning, particularly with data as rich as image video there where you can see so much here so there's like so much context in it if we can simplify that infrastructure like in that data handling for them then we can enable them to do more like i've always liked to be on the in the backgrounds even when i did participate in like the drama club or something i preferred being in the production side like helping backstage yeah. than actually acting the acting job was like it was just <laughs> like I prefer to be on that side. Like, and I think it just kind of ties into my always. I always like the operating system layer and not the application layer. Like, I guess I just become conscious of a personality trait I have. I was just having this conversation with a good friend of mine, and we were talking about exactly that. And and she was describing it almost identically as far as really thriving on being the behind the scenes and really enjoying kind of making sure that everything was in order so that there was kind of this seamless, and you know, and that if we take that analogy, right, the seamless production that takes place. And I laughed because I was like, oh, I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm the show pony. That's like, where's the spotlight? And let's see, right? Like, so, and I think there's such beauty in having, you need both. We need people who see the problems that are happening behind the scenes that are the foundation that allow for things that are more visible to happen seamlessly, to be more efficient. And so you've really embraced that, that beauty and strength that you have to see things and to really thrive in working in that space because there's there's a need for that right because if the world was all show ponies would be in a lot of trouble <laughs> um, <laughs> no but you know the thing that i've also realized it's very important is to understand how it ties into that visible stuff and that's the thing that i've been trying to work on because yeah. uh, the foundation has a more indirect impact right like when you fix yeah. the foundation i mean the, the house looks whatever it looks or it might look better, might be more reliable mm-hmm. and stuff, and it will help you do more things, but you need to be able to quantify those. And that's the part that I'm working on now. Like, okay, yes, I can see it because I see the back end side, but it's equally important to show what, you know, how it's the business impact that gets created. And that's kind of what, like, you know, it's been the focus of, I guess, the new learning that <laughs> to do. Right. Yes. Because it's so obvious. It's so obvious to you because you've lived in it. And I think about like when we, we just redid our house a, a couple of years ago, we were one of those many people who did renovations during the pandemic because we were stuck in our house for so long, but there were certain things that were very costly that were, you know, like our, 
our AC system, which it's like, it's nothing anyone will ever see, but it improves how the air flows through our house. It stabilized temperatures, regardless of what's happening outside. And it would ultimately lower our overall bill that we would have to pay. But it was really painful to stomach, you know, thousands of dollars on something that wasn't pretty or on the outside. And so I do, I think what you're doing and how you're having to articulate it and, and really getting honed in on your message, like it is, it, that, that is a big challenge. And one that I would argue, again, if I'm looking at the facts, you're doing really well, because something that I want to call out for everyone listening is that since starting Aperture Data almost five years ago, you have raised over $8 million in funding. And you just closed a series A round for 5 million. And in a time when it is much more difficult to get funding now than it was in years past, I am just so intrigued to understand more about how you are articulating and sharing what you're doing with your business, because clearly investors see the value. So tell us a little bit more about, I think maybe we've talked a little bit about what your company does, but like, I'd love to know how you have helped people understand what you're solving for and invited them to invest because they too believe in what is possible with your technology. It's been quite a journey to figure that part out because, you know, I, when we started, you know, the technology itself is so cool. Why do you need any other convention? Part, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that was, that was how I used to think about it. It's like, there are so many things you can build. I mean, it's like, you can do this, you can do that. You can distribute the database. We have to like, you know, uh, this, there is this all this availability and high performance and like, you know, we are dealing with images and videos and it just, by nature, everybody knows it's challenging. And then you realize, because the very first advice you get is like, no one cares about the implementation. When you're going to raise money, they don't care about the implementation. They, they trust you to know what you're doing. And you just have to paint that, like you have to paint why the customers would care. And, you know, that's when it starts to hit you. Well, all of this stuff is tied to the fact that somebody has is going to have to pay. And the only way they are going to be convinced to pay is it's going to solve a problem. And then you kind of like, then you're like, okay, well, you know, convincing investors is one thing. Of course, mm -hmm. we kind of, you know, it's a, it's an infrastructure product before you can uh, like, you know, make a lot of money from, from it by selling to a lot of customers. There is this part where, you need help in terms yeah. of financing because it needs to be really good engineering. The product has to be extremely reliable because you're going to store somebody's data in it and you cannot afford to lose it. And so it's not something that you can just iterate and fix it as you go. It has to start from a really good foundation. And for that, you need really good people. Yep. And really good people, uh, you know, you need a lot of money. <laughs> Even if you can convince them it's a startup and, and all that stuff, people got to pay their bills, right? And so then you're like, okay, well, convincing investors really just ties to the fact that you need to convince customers to buy it. And then it ties, then that's when you realize that business case matters. That's when you realize that you have to start showing the impact of what you would have. And what we were helped by was the fact that, you know, just in general, there is this big shift towards AI. And no one questions the fact that there is a lot of information hidden in the type of data that we deal with. So those are like the fundamental things that are just true. And the other true thing is because there's been so much development in machine learning, you can automate the understanding. You have like, you have a path towards like, okay, if I am looking at this video of a factory floor, there is the ability for it to generate, like the, the machine learning logic running on a camera today can generate an event saying, hey, 
there is a spill in this area, you need to send someone before there's an injury. Or on the retail side, like, you know, I was just talking to following up with one of our customers this morning and they have these robots walking down grocery store aisles and they help their grocery store customers by the fact that they generate events when something runs out of the shelf so that Mm -hmm. shoppers don't get that bad experience of not finding what they're looking for. But the fact that all that understanding can happen, that people already buy now. They can see that it, it, it works. But what we had to explain was that there are a lot of steps that need to go before. And one of the biggest steps is how you handle data. In mm-hmm. fact, one of the conversations I've had with senior data scientists at uh, an e-commerce company, she explained to me, it's like, you know, what the, the cost that people don't realize is, let's say you did not invest in building good data infrastructure. You took whatever tools you found and you just put them together, right? As data scientists, their job isn't to build the perfect data infrastructure. They have to build the perfect model. Right. But if they can't see the data, if you make it really hard for them to look at the images that they are training on, or if it's really hard for them to go back and debug something. In some sense, you've wasted a whole quarter building a model that's not going to give you any revenue. That's a cost that's harder to quantify, but it really affects the bottom line. And in some ways, it might draw people in the wrong conclusion, like push them into the wrong conclusion that, oh, machine learning is not ready for this sort of stuff, right? Or we are not ready for uh, making use of all this image and video treasure trove that we have. But what is missing, and that's the part that we have to address on educating and like bringing that awareness is the moment you plug in the right data tool, something that brings how to solve the challenge on managing the data and something that helps you use it easily as a data scientist or ML engineer or data engineer, then you've really removed a big part of challenge. And then you just tune your models to your heart's content and deploy them. That's the story I had to tell the investors when we were raising. It's like data infrastructure is not going away. Like data infrastructure problems are not going away. And as more and more people try to drive things into production, the database or like the, that, that layer that helps you handle all this data that talks to the rest of the ecosystem, that's going to be a make or break difference on who moves faster. And, you know, we had some customer case studies to pinpoint to. They were, you know, we have paying customers. We've gone into production on some cases. And, you know, anyone who meets our team, they're always very happy to meet our team. And so there was like this whole thing that came together. And, you know, uh, we have good advisors. And I think a combination of that and the fact that I always get so excited and like, my co-founder gets all excited describing all these things. They can just see that we are really invested into this technology, right? Like we are invested in the technology and our vision is that anytime like someone starts dealing with these types of these data types, their first thought is Aperture DB, you know, that's yeah. the right database. Like we want to solve enough problems that we become the usual answer to like, yeah. okay, where am I going to put all this data? Oh, well, I'm dealing with all this complex unstructured data. Aperture DB is the right choice. So when we think that, when we said, like, I think our investors have seen that enthusiasm. They've seen that we are really like, you know, and, and we've grown lean despite having a complex product. We've grown lean and we are always very careful about our customers' data. And there are certain fundamental principles that we don't play around with at all, whatever happens. And 
we're always there. I think one of the things our customers really like is we make more effort to make sure they all come together and we make everything work. It's like, you know, we're we are preparing a case study and, and that feedback really struck out to me. It stuck in my mind. It's like, yeah, your product did really well, but what we also liked was you guys were always there to make sure that we were doing, like, you know, that we were being successful using yeah. all this. And I'm really happy with what we've built. But that one was like the, the most precious because I always used to wonder how do you make sure that your customers are successful and somehow I feel like we are getting it or we are figuring it out without really realizing consciously. It sounds like there's some really very clear principles that you founded your company on with like hiring really great people to have like these fundamentals that are just will not be compromised that are really critical because of what you're dealing with. And then you know, delivering like really world-class customer experience, making sure that kind of, again, that feedback loop, like I see so many things that we have talked about in this time together that are weaving into how you've built this company, whether that's, you know, when you get information and then giving feedback about how it's going and making sure that there is a really great, you know, feedback loop that's happening or even the providing context with alongside the data, right? That's so much of what allows you to be so effective at understanding how things work and you're doing that in your business. And so I think there's just so many beautiful things that you've kind of taken all these incredible parts of you, built a strong team around, provided tremendous clarity on how you're going to execute. And now you're starting to gain this traction. Customers are recognizing the value of your solution, but also the quality of their experience. Again, right. It's not about quantity, it's quality. And so there's just so many cool things about you that have (laughs) woven into your business and you've kind of poured it in. And I always struggle because I want to go on for hours. Let's do this because I've got time for one more question. And I always ask this at the end of these interviews, you know, you have led a remarkable career and this is such an exciting inflection point in your journey. As you think back on your career and even life, like either advice that somebody has given you, we've talked about a lot, but advice that has served you so well, or something you have just learned that if listeners take one thing away, this is the thing you want them to walk away with. What would that be? You have to realize that very often, if you get a no, it's not necessarily you. Don't give up on things. I think there was a paper that I got rejected like five or six times. The first three times I could map it to, okay, the quality of writing could certainly use improvement. There were not enough experiments. The fourth time I was like, okay, what the heck? The fifth time, I literally was like, this is alpha particles, right? Like this, this cannot be a thing. Then when it got through, like it's one of the, now it's like referred very highly or whatever. And people knew, like we, my, my advisor always was connected to industry people. So we were never questioning the worth of doing something. Um, mm. We just had it like, okay, it is worth doing. We just have to get it through the review process and stuff, right? It's kind of similar to like, you hear so many rejects when you're raising money or like following up with customers. There's always like that, those things happen. But I feel like it just, as long as you don't lose belief in the core idea and every time like you know every time someone says no what you pick up from there is which part of my message was confusing let me fix that and I know it's easier said than done when you're going through the process it can be really disheartening it's like literally every night you go eat ice cream to make yourself feel better (laughs) but when so many people around you are believing that you're doing something worthwhile it kind of also helps But yeah, I think it's just like you have to keep going. You have to keep trying. I, 
again, this is one time where it's inconvenient to not have video because I'm smiling and nodding and yes, emphatically, because this is something that's so, I love that we, I love that you shared this because having those people around you, knowing the quality and the value of your work. And that when sometimes that the no has nothing to do with the value or the quality of what you've done. And when you have that around you to, to help with that, like it still hurts, but it's not personal at that point. And then sometimes, yeah, people say no, and it has nothing to do with, is it good? I love that you shared that. And I love that that's been something that has helped you so that you use it when the feedback can help you be better and you let it go when it doesn't serve you. Vishaka, this has been... (laughs) Just such a beautiful time. I I will make sure to to link so everyone can connect with you. If they're curious to learn more about Aperture DB, they can learn more about you. I love this idea of it becoming a household name that it is the default resource if you're going to go to, if you're dealing with really intense, complex data and you don't know where to, to sit, put it in a place to synthesize, Aperture DB is where it's going to go. And I thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for having the courage to solve this problem and for sharing your amazing story. Thanks so much, Margaret, for giving me the opportunity. This was really fun. And I hope people benefit from the experience. I know they will. Continue to be impressed throughout the conversation as Vishaka clearly continued to know who she was and what was important to her and allowed that to inform decisions and also be open when opportunities presented themselves. If you enjoyed this conversation with Vishaka, I would encourage you to take a moment, reach out to her, let her know the impact today's conversation had on you. If you are enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you took a moment, leave us a quick review anywhere you're getting your podcast fixed. I want to say a big thank you to Josh Reedford for the amazing editing he does week in and week out to bring this podcast to life. And last but never least, I want to say thank you to this community for showing up, for investing in yourself and continuing to rise. Until next week, y'all, keep rising.